0: Alrighty, hello. Today I'm going to be talking about basic principles of pharmacology, pharmacokinetics, and pharmacodynamics as well. So this will be for the pathopharmacology lecture on May 14th. So just starting out with a few basic terms. Um, a drug is defined as any chemical that affects living processes. So it could really be anything as long as it affects your, the body and tissue. Pharmacology is a study of drugs and their interactions with the living system. On the other hand, clinical pharmacology is a study of drugs in humans, so think pharmacology, drugs, and living systems, and clinical pharmacology as drugs in humans. We also have pharmacotherapeutics, which is the use of drugs to diagnose, prevent, or treat disease or to prevent pregnancy. Our next set of basic terms includes therapeutic effect, which is the expected favorable response of a drug that's administered. You also have side effects, which are unintended effects that commonly occur but are mild in nature. So, these are not the super severe ones and they occur relatively regularly. On the other hand, we also have adverse effects, which are the unintended and unexpected effects that are more severe and can be life-threatening. So, this could be things like anaphylaxis and allergic reactions, which are the most severe type of adverse reaction. An allergic reaction could be as mild as itching and rash, Um, to respiratory compromise and anaphylaxis. So there are a number of nursing responsibilities regarding drugs. You want to ensure that you have the right patient, the right drug, the right dose, the right time, the right assessment, the right documentation, the right evaluation, the right of the patient to education, and the right of the patient to refuse care. Moving into some properties of an ideal drug. There are the big three, which include effectiveness, safety, and selectivity. So effectiveness is absolutely number one, the most important. If a drug does not work for its intended purpose, there is no benefit to taking it. So you want to make sure that the drug is effective above all else. You also want to ensure safety, which means that there's kind of minimal side effects and adverse effects. Though it's important to note that there's no perfectly safe drug. You also want to make sure a drug is selective. So it's that it ideally elicits the response for which it is given. So effectiveness would outweigh the other two. You want to make sure that a drug is effective for administration. Some additional properties, reversible action. Um, you want to make sure the actions of the drug subside at the appropriate time. So a good example of this is a reversible anesthetic or birth control. So you would, one, wake up, or two, be able to um, have children later in life despite using an anesthetic or birth control. Um, you also want a drug to be predictable, so a provider should be able to know how a patient is expected to respond. Ease of administration is also important. You want it to be a convenient method and have the fewest doses per day possible. We're also looking for minimal drug interactions. While they can sometimes be positive to increase potency, they're generally negative and you want to keep them to a minimum. Low cost is also important. If a patient can't afford it, there's no point in prescribing it. Chemical stability means that it has a shelf life and is able to be stored in kind of easy conditions, and also possession of a simple generic name so it's easily recognizable. It's important to note that no drug is ideal, all drugs have the potential to produce side effects. And drug responses can be difficult to predict. There can also be lots of interactions between drugs, even routine drugs, and drugs may be expensive, unstable, or hard to administer. Thus, we have the therapeutic objective. So the kind of goal that guides everything, knowing that there isn't gonna be a perfect drug or a perfect option. We want to provide maximum benefit with minimal harm. So we're maximizing the benefit to the patient while minimizing harm. So it's always kind of going to be a balance between the two. So reviewing some drug legislation, um, it really started in 1848 with the Drug Importation Act. Um, All the details of the specific laws aren't particularly important, but it's it's good to know that the U.S. has a a relatively long history of trying to kind of control the quality and safety and labeling of drugs. And a few of the more recent um, legislative attempts were the result of negative experiences with a public in drugs, such as the thalidomide tragedy that occurred mainly in Europe. So the landmark drug legislation here is the Controlled Substances Act that was passed in 1970. So this assigned basically all drugs on schedules, so schedules one through five. So we have schedule one, and that means that these drugs have no accepted medical use and are deemed to have an extremely high potential of abuse. So these, they're not going to benefit patients in any way. We are not able to prescribe them. They are illegal. So these are things like heroin and LSD. It also means it's very difficult to do research on these drugs. For our schedules two through five, it's kind of a sliding scale. Um, schedule two has some accepted medical applications, but also a pretty high potential for abuse. And as you kind of go... Uh, so that includes things like morphine, Percocet, Demerol, Oxycontin, etc. And as you go down to 3, 4, and 5, you're having decreasing potential for abuse um, and still maintaining that medical benefit. So the process of new drug development occurs in phases. So we start off with preclinical testing, and this is done in animals. Once it's kind of determined that it could be effective, and we know some of the potential side effects, toxicity, and pharmacokinetics of the drug, it moves into clinical testing. So this starts with phase one. It's a relatively small-scale phase, um, a small study that involves healthy volunteers to kind of evaluate how it functions in the body. Then you move into phase two, which is also a small study that involves actual patients, not volunteers. And this test tests um, the utility of the drug in the general dosage range, so application to patients themselves. In phase three, this is kind of the largest portion in which you have the s- subjects are patients, once again, and it's testing safety and effectiveness. After this, the drug receives a conditional approval of new drug ap- application, or an NDA, and it is able to be prescribed. And so phase four, which is the last phase, is post-marketing surveillance. So effectively, it's still being regulated, and they're still watching to make sure that It doesn't have any major long-term adverse effects and that it's still safe when prescribed for the general population. So really important to make sure you're they're following up with drugs even if that when they're being prescribed on a large scale. So this is kind of a general study tip or something to keep in mind. Um, Drugs are categorized into categories. Shocking. So drugs in the same category will act in a similar manner and generally have many of the same therapeutic effects, side and adverse effects, contraindications and precautions, and administration considerations. So it's really helpful to learn by category and learn a prototype for the category and then just memorize that and the exceptions. So each drug has three names. You have the chemical name that is based on the chemical structure. So it's going to be identifying what is in that drug exactly. You also have the generic name which is created by the US adopted names council. This is a non-proprietary name so not associated with any specific company. Additionally, the final syllables indicate the class to which the drug belongs, so it's a good clue as to what type of drug it is when you can recognize those last syllables, or potentially a prefix as well. The generic name is also not capitalized, and it's unique to one drug. Trade names, on the other hand, are the proprietary or brand names, so these are created by drug companies with the intention that they're easy to pronounce and recall, so it's kind of more of a marketing strategy. They do have to be approved by the FDA and they can't apply efficacy through the name. Trade names are also capitalized, so that's a good way to distinguish them from generic names. So when we're comparing generic versus trade drugs, all equivalent medications are going to contain the same dose of the same drug, but there are some differences. The cost will vary, but it's usually pretty considerable. Additionally, the inert ingredients can differ. So you could have the same trade name, but different active ingredients. The preparation can also differ and all of these things could result in different absorption rates or onset of therapeutic benefit and the extent of this therapeutic benefit can also differ. The FDA does require that generic formulations are have similar bioavailability to brand names. So the bioavailability is the measurement of the drug's ability to reach circulation from the site of administration. So These studies are always performed on generic medications, and per the FDA, the bioavailability of the generic must be between 80% and 125% of the brand name to be considered bioequivalent. So this is standardized, and you can be relatively assured that you are getting a similar product. There are also some newer terms in pharmacology. Um, Pharmacogenetics is a study of how genes affect individual drug responses, such as if an inherited allele would affect your ability to metabolize a certain medication. We also have toxidromes, which are a group of signs or symptoms, and or symptoms, um, or also characteristic effects that are associated with exposure to a particular substance or class of substances. So you could think of serotonin syndrome, anticholinergic responses, or even the kind of hallmark symptoms of opioid overdoses. So moving into the second second section, section of this chapter, pharmacokinetics. There are a few factors that determine the intensity of drug responses. We have administration, pharmacokinetics, which is where we're at now, pharmacodynamics, and individual variations. Starting with administration, there are a few factors of administration that would impact the effect. We have route, which is IV, um, per orum, subcutaneous, intramuscular, things like that, Um, timing, like what time of day it's typically given at or the rhythm of dosing. Also dosage, the amount itself, so usually the, more, the higher dose of a drug, the more intense the response will be. Compliance, if a patient is um, skipping doses because maybe they're rationing it or unable to afford their medication, they're going to have a less intense response. And also medication error, which could cause more intense or less intense responses depending on the type of error. So just a quick differentiation, pharmacokinetics is the impact of the body on the drug while pharmacodynamics is the impact of the drug on the body so pharmacokinetics once again impact of the body on drugs involves four properties absorption distribution metabolism and excretion which i remember is ADME, me kind of similar to ADPI, which is the nursing process also the term, pharmaco, the term pharmacokinetics is derived from two greek words pharmakon which means drug or poison and kinesis which is motion So that could be helpful to remembering that too. So there are three ways that drugs can cross cell membranes. We have channels and pores, transport systems, and direct penetration of the membrane. So unfortunately, channels and pores, most drugs are too large to pass through. So this is not a super common route. We also have transport systems such as the P glycoprotein, which is actually an efflux mechanism. So it's transporting drugs out of the cells. Finally, we have direct penetration of the membrane, which is the most common, since cell members are primarily composed of those lipids, as we know. To directly penetrate the membranes, the drug must be lipid-soluble or lipophilic and non-ionized. So that P-glycoprotein, as we talked about, one of those types of transport systems, it's that efflux pump, so it uses ATP to pump the drug out of the cell. It's transmembranous, so it functions on both sides of the membrane and spans the entire width. And since it's efflux it's decreasing drug absorption and drug access to tissues this is a really common um, type of protein that you'll see in areas where the body is trying to protect tissue from things like drugs so that would be in the liver the kidneys the intestines and the brain so absorption equals kind of the movement of a drug from its site of administration to the various tissues of the body and i just want to make a quick note absorption is not equivalent to bioavailability. Bioavailability is the rate and extent that the med travels to the site of, or travels from the site of absorption, whereas absorption is the actual process of movement. So bioavailability is affected by absorption, but they are not the same. There are a number of factors that affect drug absorption. So we have faster or the rate of dissolution. So the faster a drug dissolves in the body, it's going to be absorbed more quickly because that drug will be available more rapidly. Additionally, increased surface area leads to faster absorption because there's kind of more space for the body to work with it and it's able to get exposed to tissues at a higher rate. Um, Blood flow, increased blood flow would also Increase absorption rates, um, if you think about intramuscular injections, those are pretty effective for fast absorption because it goes into a highly vascularized tissue, which is muscle. Lipid solubility is also notable. As we know, lipid-soluble molecules are able to um, freely diffuse through the cell membrane. So if a drug is lipid-soluble, it will be absorbed dramatically faster. Also pH partitioning. Um, acidic drugs accumulate faster in alkaline um, I guess alkaline parts of the body or regions of the body, whereas alkaline drugs accumulate faster in acidic parts of the body. And just an example, so we have aspirin, which is an acidic drug. While it's in acidic environments, think the stomach, it remains non-ionized, so it stays in its form, and it moves into the plasma based on the concentration gradient. As it enters the plasma, which is alkaline, it's going to become negatively charged, and it's unable to diffuse back to the stomach. So the acidic drug will then be trapped in the alkaline side because it stays charged. And yes, pH generally affects drug distribution, which is notable if you're looking at someone um, facing kind of alkalosis of the blood. So just some characteristics of commonly used routes of administration. Um, We have parenteral, parenteral, (laughs) I don't know parental. (laughs) Um, So this is an example of this is intravenous. So intravenous IV administration has a lot of advantages. Um, You're able to give medications to patients who are unable to tolerate fluids or take drugs through their mouth, PO. It also bypasses a lot of barriers to drug absorption that can occur with other routes such as PO. It has a rapid drug action in larger amounts and can contain larger amounts than one could give subcutaneously or intramuscularly. It also does allow slow administration, so if you wanted to, you could titrate down the rate of administration to accommodate kind of the slower moving drugs or slower diffusion. Some disadvantages, there's a really high potential for adverse reactions because it does go directly into the bloodstream, and after it's injected, the drug cannot be retrieved if adverse effects or overdoses occur. So this is something really important to remember, Um, if you had an oral drug, you could that was given in a really high volume, you could have the patient maybe throw up or administer charcoal to help kind of deactivate some of that drug, but if it's IV, it's it's in the body. There's no way to get it back. So it's really important that you're extra precise with IV medications. We also have intramuscular, which is also parenteral. Um, it has some advantages. It can be used for several drugs and that drug absorption, absorption is once again rapid because the muscle tissue does have a really abundant blood supply. Some disadvantages, you're only able to administer three milliliters in this method, and there's also a risk of damage to blood vessels or nerves if the needle is not positioned correctly. Our last parenteral um, route of administration is subcutaneous. So some advantages, it's relatively painless, and you can use very small needles to do it. So this is a good option if you have people who are kind of of afraid of injections or medications in general. Some disadvantages, you can only give a really small amount of the drug and only a few drugs are even able to be given subcutaneously. Additionally, the drug absorption is relatively low because it kind of is into that fatty tissue which is not highly vascularized. Moving on to oral, there are many advantages to this. Um, You can have a lot of different formulations such as immediate release and extended release. Um, There's also enteric coated pills so it kind of protects the drug from being dissolved in the stomach. It's also able to be used by a large variety of people and is very convenient. It's easy to take and non-invasive. Some disadvantages, um, the drug might be metabolized in the liver before it reaches the bloodstream. So it might never reach the bloodstream and be able to impact kind of that therapeutic effect like we'd hope. It also is a slow drug action because it has to pass through the GI tract for, first before it can work. And it can cause irritation of the GI tract too. So some additional routes of administration, you have topical, so kind of rubbing things on the skin, transdermal, inhalation, um, rectal, vaginal, and direct injection to specific sites such as the heart, joints, nerves, and central nervous system. And here I kind of think of um, like an epinephrine injection into the heart during a code or um, a steroid injection into a joint. So next, after we have administration, we have distribution, which is the movement of the drugs throughout the body. So this is determined by blood flow to the tissue and the ability of the drug to exit the vascular system. And we'll discuss this further, but there are a few ways you have the typical capillary beds, the blood brain barrier, and placental drug transfer, and also protein binding and how that impacts it. So blood flow, our first principle. So drugs are carried by the blood to tissues and organs of the body, so the blood flow will determine the rate of delivery. There are a couple things that can really impact this. Um, when one has an abscess, it's basically a pus-filled little pocket in the tissue. Um, and so it not only is not vascularized, since it's kind of just that pur- purulent material and it doesn't have the internal blood vessels, but it also can compress surrounding vessels to further diminish the vasculature there you also can have solid tumors that have a really limited blood supply and kind of are growing independent of that and so that is particularly important when you have tumors these solid tumors that require chemotherapy because they're going to be really resistant since the the blood flow isn't able to access them without vasculature when it comes to exiting the vascular system there are a number of considerations so we have their typical capillary beds Um, and they generally have relatively large spaces between the cells. So some drugs can pass through capillary beds and pass through the cells. On the other hand, albumin, one of the most common proteins of the body, is far too large to pass through these capillary cells. And so when a drug is bound to albumin or other proteins in the body, it's not going to be able to exit. So you have to kind of remove that binding from protein for it to for it to enter the tissue itself. We also have the blood-brain barrier. Um, this has is a barrier with really tight junctions in between cells, so it's really limited in what's able to pass to protect our brain. Thus, only drugs that are lipid-soluble or have a specific transport system can cross the blood-brain barrier. One other possibility is placental drug transfer. This is only relevant, um, only lipid-soluble drugs, once again, can readily cross and enter the fetal blood supply. So, ions and polar molecules are not able to enter the fetal blood supply through the placenta. Finally, as we talked about with protein binding, um, since albumin and other proteins found in the blood are extremely large in comparison to the free drug that could be found in the blood, Um, bound molecules would have to dissociate from the protein or, for example, albumin to pass through the capillary tissue and leave the vascular system. So we've talked about administration, we've talked about distribution, now we're on to metabolism. So metabolism is also known as biotransformation, which is defined as the enzymatic alteration of drug structure. This usually takes place in the liver um, through hepatic drug metabolizing enzyme system p450 also known as cytochrome p450 so there are 12 enzyme related families here and we have cyp1 cyp2 and cyp3 that metabolize drugs so I kind of remember this as drug metabolism is easy as cyp123 kind of a fun little rhyme there <laughs> um, other enzyme families in the liver metabolize endogenous compounds so from the body such as fatty acids or steroid homo- hormones So metabolism can do a lot of things. Considering drug metabolism in the liver, it could limit drug action in a couple of ways. It could accelerate renal drug excretion um, by making lipid-soluble drugs hydrophilic. It could inactivate the drug itself, so change it out of its active form so it can't um, exert any benefit or effect on the body at all. It could also increase the effect, so it could increase the therapeutic action, if you think of the transformation of codeine to morphine, or it could activate the prodrug. And prodrug is just a medication that's taken in an inactive form that would then be activated via metabolism, so it wouldn't have an impact until it underwent cellular metabolism in the liver. It could also increase or decrease toxicity, so either way there. So there are some considerations that are particular to certain groups or um, just other considerations for drug metabolism in particular. One is age. Infants and the elderly are less able to metabolize, so there's going to be an increased risk of um, an increased risk of toxicity in them. And you should also take that into consideration with dosing. You could also see differences between male and female, or genetically, or other differences such as that. You also have the induction and inhibition of drug metabolizing enzymes, so this could either increase or decrease the production of these enzymes in the liver and thus either increase or decrease metabolism. We have the first pass effect in which the drug is deactivated by the liver before it enters circulation, and this is a problem with per-oram drugs, so PO drugs. And lots of medications are IVIM or topical, other methods too, to prevent this because it effectively prevents the therapeutic benefit from the patient. Nutritional status is also important. When someone is malnourished, they're going to have decreased liver enzymes and thus a decreased ability to met- metabolize medications. And also competition among drugs. If someone is, um, if you have polypharmacy and someone is on a lot of medications, they could be competing for the same metabolism enzymes, and thus they would all be metabolized at lower rates this is kind of another um, perspective of it, another aspect of metabolism that's notable. You could have enterohepatic recirculation. So this is a repeating cycle in which the drug is transported from the liver into the duodenum via the bile duct and then back to the liver via the portal blood. So the med could be taken in through the GI tract, transported into the portal vein, into the liver, through the bile to the duodenum slash GI tract, and just continue cycling. So this process, the Terohepatic recirculation is actually limited to drugs that have undergone glucuronidation, which forms water-soluble substrates from foreign substances. Okay, so we've talked about administration, we've talked about distribution, we've talked about metabolism. Now it's time to talk about excretion, which is the removal of drugs from the body. So drugs and their metabolites can exit the body through urine, sweat, saliva, breast milk, bile, or expired air, But it's most common to exit through the kidneys in your urine. So next we'll discuss renal routes of excretion. So there are a couple steps in renal drug excretion. We have glomerular filtration, passive tubular reabsorption, and active tubular secretion. So when we're looking at glomerular filtration, um, basically everything can filter through except protein-bound drugs. So anything bound to albumin or other proteins will not pass through the glomerulus and will remain in the blood. Then we have passive tubular reabsorption. So this is when lipid-soluble medications are going to be reabsorbed into the body, while ionized or polar drugs remain in urine. These drugs are reabsorbed because there is a concentration gradient. So when there's more drug in the filtrate than the blood, um, the drugs will be reabsorbed and enter the blood. Finally, we have an active transport tubular pump that moves drugs from blood to the urine. So that could work for maybe, um, I'm not positive of this, but drugs that are bound to albumin or polar, so would otherwise not be entering that filtrate. So review, glomerular filtration affects everything but protein-bound drugs. Um, Passive tubular reabsorption is when lipid-soluble drugs travel down the concentration gradient from the urine filtrate into the blood. And then active tubular secretion where drugs are being pumped from the blood into the urine some other important considerations we have onset peak and duration so onset of action is the amount of time a drug needs to establish a therapeutic response we also have peak which is the amount of time a drug needs for the full therapeutic effect so this is when the drug is at its highest level in the body the duration of action is the length of time that the therapeutic benefits will last And the trough is when the drug is at the lowest level in the body. So plasma drug levels are really important clinically um, since when you're looking at dosage, since the size of the dose would control the response of the drug. So there are two important plasma drug levels. We have the minimum effective concentration, which is the smallest dose that would produce the desired effect. And then also the toxic concentration, or the TC, which has damaging effects on the body. So there's a range in between these two. So at the lower end, we have the MEC, the minimum effective concentration. You want above that amount, so it impacts the body and has that therapeutic benefit. But you want it below the toxic concentration, so it doesn't harm the body unnecessarily. And between those two, between the MEC and the TC, you have the therapeutic range, which is kind of the sweet spot, where you get the effect without toxicity, So the objective of drug dosing is to maintain plasma drug levels within the therapeutic range so this is measured and kind of monitored through peak and trough levels so the peak level would be measured half an hour to one hour after drug administration to ensure that the highest level of the drug in the body is going to be below that toxic concentration or tc on the other hand the trough level is measured one half an hour to one hour before the next dose of the drug to ensure that the lowest level is above the minimum effective concentration. So that's just basically verifying that the patient is constantly within the therapeutic range for their drug. The next important concept is the drug (coughs) half-life or the time that it takes for drug levels to decrease by 50%. So it goes by percentage, not an amount. So you're not reducing it by a certain amount, it's by 50%. So, for example, the morphine half-life is three hours. So the goal of the drug is to keep it within that therapeutic range, right? And so we have something called the four half-life rule. It basically ensures that um, the levels are going to be consistent. So you have a certain amount of the drug that's eliminated between doses, and you also have the amount administered. And so when you when the amount of the drug that's excreted equals the amount administered, the levels are going to remain consa- constant and a consistent dose and the kind of concentration in the plasma will be achieved. So this is usually received or reached within four half-lives, which is the point at which it plateaus at the original dose level. So that's really important. It kind of indicates how long you could expect for a patient to be receiving a consistent therapeutic benefit with a dose. To expedite this process, a patient could also be given loading doses, which is when drugs with a really long half-life get large initial doses to reach that therapeutic range much more quickly. You could also have maintenance doses, which are small doses to maintain the therapeutic range. Okay, so the last section of this lecture is pharmacodynamics and individual variations. And I have to cough. (laughs) So that last section, pharmacodynamics and individual variations, we're going to start a general definition of pharmacodynamics, which is the study of the biochemical and physiologic effects of drugs and the molecular mechanisms by which those effects are produced. So basically the impact of drugs on the body or the biochemical changes that occur in the body as a result of taking the drug. So remember, this is opposed to pharmacokinetics, which is the impact of the drug or the body on the drug or me. So the effect of drugs on the site of action, we have the term maximal efficacy, which is the largest dose or the largest response possible regardless of the dose. So for example, for dopamine, that would be 20 micrograms per kilogram per minute. So after this point or after this level of dose, the therapeutic results and benefits wouldn't increase at all. You'd only have an increase in adverse effects. The second term is relative potency, which is the dose of the drug required to produce an effect. For example, morphine is more po- potent than miperidine because it requires a lower dose to produce the same effect. And it's important to note this is not related to efficacy, which is an important drug quality. So we have four primary receptor families. We have the cell membrane embedded enzyme receptor or enzyme-linked receptor, and this is the most common We also have the ligand-gated ion channels, in which a specific protein is needed to open that ion channel. We have the G-protein receptor, in which the drug activates the receptor, the receptor activates a G-protein, and the G-protein activates internal mechanisms. So that's going to be that second messenger system. We also have transcription factors, which are located on the DNA of the nucleus to regulate protein synthesis. So the concept of agonist and antagonist, an agonist is going to be any substance that would activate the receptors. So it's a molecule that would activate it. Um, it generally mimics the action of endogenous molecules. We also have antagonists, which prevent activation of the receptor. So we could have competitive antagonists, which bind reversibly, so they could be removed from the receptor, or non-competitive antagonists, which bind irreversibly to f- and stay there for the life of the cell or the life of the receptor. Somewhere in the middle, we have partial agonists, which are also obviously partial antagonists. This um, type of agonist slash antagonist would achieve less than the effect of an agonist, but still can compete for agonist sites. There can be a good bit of variability in drug responses um, between different patients, meaning the dose required to produce a therapeutic response can vary substantially among patients for physiologic reasons, pathologic Um, age, nutritional status, genetics, or the presence of other drugs that they are taking. So we have a measurement of interpatient variability to determine the objective endpoint of the drug, also known as the ED40, which is the dose that will produce a desired response in 50% of the population. So this is calculated by, for example, if you establish the endpoint of having a certain gastric pH You know the goal of the drug, so the drug would be administered to 100 patients, starting at low concentrations, and you'd see how many milligrams were required to achieve this objective endpoint, or the ideal pH in our example. So the ED50 would be the center of this distribution curve. And this results in the standard dose for initial treatment and is frequently selected by providers. It could then be increased or decreased depending on the need or response from the patient. We have to have a way to kind of evaluate how safe these drugs are, so the therapeutic index, or TI, exists as a measure of safety. It's calculated by dividing um, the lethal dose, or LD50, over the effective dose, or ED50. So you're looking for a higher TI as safer, which means that the therapeutic range is larger than it is in other drugs. So the higher the TI, the more distance of dosage between the average dose and a dose that would be lethal in the average individual. There are a number of types of drug interactions that you can have that affect the way it functions in the body. You could have direct chemical or physical interactions, which could be synergistic or antagonistic. Um, You could also have pharmacokinetic interactions that infect the absorption, distribution, metabolism, or excretion of the drug. Pharmacodynamic interactions, could exist in which individual differences inhibit or increase the response and then you could have the combined toxicity interactions such as two drugs that cause hepatotoxicity if you take both it would increase that toxicity and the impact on liver cells so we have drug food interactions so food can not only alter the rate of absorption but also impact drug metabolism A great example of this is the grapefruit juice effect. It inhibits the enzyme CYP3, which is really important for drug metabolism in those hepatocytes. When you inhibit that enzyme, you're unable to metabolize the drug, and it could result in toxic levels of plasma drug levels. We also have the impacts of foods on drug toxicity. Um, MAO inhibitors, which are a medication for clinical depression, um, react with foods that contain tyramine such as wine or cheese to result in malignant hypertension. Another example of this is spiralactone and salt substitutions. Um, Spirallactone is a diuretic that causes potassium retention, whereas many salt substitutions are potassium, so it could result in hyperkalemia. Another classic example is with herbs like St. John's wort, which increases P450 action which is that CYP1, 2, and 3 in the liver that would result in drug metabolism. So sometimes patients don't always understand that herbs do have an effect, and it's important to consider that and ask specifically about it.